Amen. Well, good morning. It is so good to be with you all this morning. I want to thank you for your patience and your flexibility this morning as uh, we've been running around a good bit today, uh, getting things going, getting ready for just a lot happening in the life of our church as we prayerfully look to the future and look to what uh, God would have us do. And so again, you heard the announcement this morning uh, from Pastor Corey. I want to uh, just reiterate and remind you that tonight at five o'clock in this room, uh, we want you to be here. So if you're uh, a, a part of our faith family, a member of our church, even if you're not a member and you're just curious about where we're going as a church, um, tonight's a great night to be here uh, to hear more about where we believe the Lord is taking us. Again, we're calling this a listening session. Some people have asked, well, why are we not doing this in a members meeting or in a business meeting? Well, because we wanted to have the freedom and the flexibility to be able to communicate, but then to keep the floor open for questions and for conversations and even for a time of prayer. And so uh, that's going to be available tonight. Also, if you can't be with us, then you should have received an email uh, showing you how you can log in through Zoom and join us uh, digitally as well. So um, just know that you have that option available to you as well. Now, I want to add a caveat to those of you who may want to join us on Zoom. Uh, just know that as your pastor on Zoom, I reserve the right to remove you from Zoom at any point uh, under the grace and will of God. So I'm kidding. I would never do that. Um, please join however you can. We want you to be a part of this conversation. All of a sudden, Steve Summercamp looked and was like, yeah, that's me. He'd probably do that to me. I would not do that to you, brother. So uh, anyway, join with us, uh, whether you can be here in person, online, whatever it may be. Uh, we'd love to see you here uh, this evening in this room at 5 o'clock. Now, having said that, we are back in our study through uh, the letter to Titus. Um, we are now wrapping up Titus chapter 2 today in our series that we have called Letters from the Pastor. Now, again, if you've not been with us, we are currently walking through Titus. We are going to then go back to First and Second Timothy and see uh, what Paul will then have to say to Timothy and to the church that he is leading. But for our purposes today, we are still in Titus. And as we have already seen over the past two weeks, we have now uh, seen Paul's words and we've seen Paul's uh, really calling Titus, calling the church, and, and our calling today to pursue godliness in the unique roles that God has called us to. And with that, we have already seen that not only are we called to pursue godliness, but there is now a call to daily godly living. Now, when, as we continue to study this this morning, we're going to now look to the fact that it is the grace of God that is the very foundation for godly living. You see, in my opinion, there is no doctrine in Scripture that is more precious, more beautiful, or even more necessary than the doctrine of salvation. In fact, I would argue that there's probably no word that is more crucial to the life of the church today than the word grace. You see, the sovereign God of creation reached down from heaven and rescued us wretched, undeserving sinners. He rescued us from the bondage of sin, from the bondage of spiritual death and eternal separation from God in a place called hell. And so this can only be summed up with one word. And that word again is grace. Would you say it with me for a moment? Grace. You see, it is by God's grace 
that we are here today. Now, salvation and the grace of God is clearly not a popular subject within our culture today. You see, people do not want to hear that Jesus is the only way to God. Rather, they want to, be, they want to hear, they want to be told, and they want to live in such a way where they believe that they can go their own way. Or better yet, they can go on their own journey of discovery to determine what faith is. In fact, modern culture would say of us today as believers in Christ that our beliefs and our values are too narrow. They are too restrictive and intolerant and unloving that we as believers are now judgmental and therefore unworthy of the God that we imagine him to be. You see, some of these very same people would then tell us that they believe in thoughts like universalism. You see, that's where people believe that there is an unlimited number of ways to God. And so they would argue that all roads lead up to the same pinnacle of the mountain. In other words, all roads eventually will lead to God. And therefore, irregardless of your belief system, all will eventually be saved. Others would argue that they believe in inclusivism which is where people acknowledge that Jesus is Savior. However, it is possible to be saved by him even though you've never had a personal relationship with him. You see, they believe that salvation can be received through positive thoughts of God. They believe if you think good and you live good, then you are good. And because God is good, he will receive you in all your goodness. They would also argue that other world religions would also get to heaven as well by their works. You see, they believe that their good deeds will be all the salvation that they need. Now, there are others who teach exclusivism, and this is more in line with our camp today. You see, for those who believe in exclusivism, they believe that salvation comes through a personal faith and commitment to Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. These particular people, like us, affirm there's absolute uniqueness and finality of God's revelation of Jesus Christ. In other words, these are the folks who would say that Christ alone is the one and only Savior as taught to us by the Word of God from John chapter 14, verse 6 and Acts chapter 4, verse 12. You see, here's the reality of what we believe. God would not have sent his only son, to die on a cross if he could have saved us by some other means. A sacrifice had to be made. There had to be some sort of atonement. And so today, today we're going to spend some time talking about the doctrine of salvation You see, as believers in Christ, we have a responsibility to proclaim the doctrine of salvation. We have a responsibility and a call to teach the doctrine of salvation because the reality is the doctrine of salvation is made known now through the preaching and teaching of the gospel throughout the world. So as we look at our passage today in Titus chapter 2, beginning with verse 11, we're going to learn about the grace of of God that brings salvation for all. So if you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, 
I would invite you to turn with me now to Titus chapter 2. We are going to begin reading in verse 11. And once you have found your place in your Bible, I would invite you now, if you can and you're able, to stand in honor of the reading of the Word of God. Now again, this is Paul's words to Titus. In Titus chapter 2, beginning in verse 11, Paul writes, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works." Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Let's pray together. Father God, we come before you right now thanking you so much for this time. And Father, we thank you so much for this morning and for the opportunity that we have to be in this place, to talk about your word. God, we praise you for the opportunity that we have to worship you today. Thank you for the opportunity we've had to worship you already through the singing of your word, through the hearing of your spoken word, through prayer. And now, Father, we pray that you would prepare our hearts and our minds as we seek to understand you through the study of your word. So, Father, we ask in these next few moments, may you and you alone be glorified as we read and learn more of the goodness of your grace. Father, we love you. We thank you for loving us. Thank you for delighting in us. For it's in your precious and holy name we pray. Amen. Thank you. You can be seated. Now, if I could, I want to set the scene for you before we jump into this text. You see, Paul here is actually highlighting the grace of God along with the glory of God. So for Paul, the gospel itself can literally be summed up in one word. And that word is Jesus. So as we look to this passage, we need to ask ourselves, what does God want us to know? Or better yet, what does God want us to learn about his grace? Well, first we look to verses 11 and 12, and we see that grace teaches us how to live. Now, as you look to verse 11, notice this about Paul. He starts with another conjunction. And so if you do highlight or underline or circle in your Bible, I would circle the word for here. Because you see, this word ties together, verses 11 through 15, to the instruction that we've just read about over the past two weeks in verses 1 through 10. In other words, we are seeing that God's commands in verses 1 through 10 are actually rooted in God's God's grace that we are going to be talking about today in verses 11 through 15. So for the believer, according to Paul, in these verses, we can now see that belief and behavior are woven together by the grace of God for the glory of God. So as believers in Jesus Christ, we can look to this passage knowing that we now have assurance because God demands what God demands of us is possible because of what it is that he has first done for us and within us. So we look from there beyond the conjunction for 
And we see the phrase, the grace of God. Now, Paul here, in talking about the grace of God, is actually referring to God's unmerited favor. He's talking about God's goodness and his kindness and his compassion and his mercy towards us. And who are we? We are wretched, undeserving sinners in need of a Savior. Paul goes on from there and says that for the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation. In other words, Paul is saying that God has given us deliverance and has rescued us from sin and from his judgment and his wrath. Now notice this about Paul already in these first few phrases. His point is very clear. No grace would mean no salvation. Now, Paul goes on to say that this salvation comes from the grace of God that, according to him, is for all people. In other words, God has made known what, has, what was previously unknown and has made it known for all the world to see. In other words, we are now seeing the perfect atonement of Jesus Christ has now made all men savable. You see, every sin of every person now has its answer in Jesus Christ. In other words, there is no nation, there is no tongue, there is no people that is now excluded from the saving work of Jesus Christ by the grace of God. In other words, no one can out-sin the grace of God. Now pay attention here. Because what Paul is showing us is he's showing us the very nature of God. You see, God is a saving God. And so as we clearly see already, his gracious gift of salvation has appeared for all. That now leads us into verse 12. And as we look into verse 12, this passage actually deals a death blow, if you will, and puts an end to any theology that separates salvation from the demands of obedience to the lordship of Jesus Christ. You see, because of God's grace, there is now a new direction in a person's life that is ultimately the outgrowth and expectation of God for those who have experienced his salvation. In other words, the grace of God, the goodness of God, and the glory of God now calls us to obedience. And because it has called us to obedience, it now instructs us, according to Paul here, to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. Paul takes it a step further and says that this grace and goodness and glory now also teaches us to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. In other words, God's grace calls us to righteous living toward ourselves, calls us to righteous living towards others, and calls us to righteous living towards God. Now, I love what Jerry Bridges says about this particular passage. He says that godliness is having a regard for God's glory and God's will in every aspect of our lives, doing everything out of reverence and love for him. You see, it is grace that teaches us to live this way. 
It cannot be done by our own power. It cannot be done by our own strength or even our own genius or even our own abilities. You see, it is only grace and grace alone that is able to break the bondage of sin. So not only does grace now save, but grace also transforms. And so when we look to our own lives today, we need to see that we need to live a life that is covered in grace. We move from there into verse 13, and we see that grace teaches us where to keep our focus. Now notice what Paul says in verse 13. He says that we are to see this particular call and to live in the present age. Now that phrase is actually important because we can clearly see that Paul is using this as a reminder that there is still an age to come. In other words, for the believer in Christ, earth is not our home. This world is not our final destination. It's like we read in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 10, and speaking of Abraham, it says of Abraham that he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. In other words, we are to live the same way. We are to live looking forward to our homecoming, looking forward to what the kingdom of God will be like, looking forward to spending eternity with Jesus Christ in the place that he has designed and he has built and he has done it for the goodness of man, but ultimately for his own glory. So while we are still in this present age, Notice that Paul calls us to waiting. Now, this call to waiting is not a simple call. It's not a call to simply sit still. It's not a call to basically become motionless. Rather, it's a call to look ahead with eager expectation and confidence in what is to come. And so now we have to ask ourselves, well, what are we waiting for? Well, obviously, Paul answers that when he responds by saying that we are waiting on our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, notice what Paul's doing here in Titus 2. He's now giving the believers a twofold appearing. First, we see in verse 11 that there's the appearance of God's grace, and then you jump over to verse 13, and we see God's glory. Now, in both of these appearances, Paul is talking about Jesus Christ. We see that the grace that has appeared speaks of the first coming of Jesus Christ and the glory that will appear is speaking of his second coming. So as believers, with patience and an eager gaze, with the experience of grace upon our lives, our eyes are to remain fixed heavenward with one hope, and that is the return of the King Jesus. You see, like Paul states here, we as believers in Christ, we are clearly not looking for anyone. 
Rather, we are looking for someone in particular. So as believers, as we gather for worship, as we move about our days, when we find ourselves in worship, whether it be individually or corporately, we need to look and to long for the one who is our great God and Savior. Notice what Paul is doing here. Paul is giving us a clear and magnificent statement about the deity of Jesus Christ. You see, we are seeing Paul say that he is our great God. In other words, in other words there is no one greater. We are to look to him. In other words, he is to be the object of our worship. He is creator and savior, the forgiver of sins. He is the final judge. He is the one to whom we pray. And according to Paul in Colossians chapter 2, verse 9, he is the one to whom all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. You see, Jesus is our deliverer. He is our redeemer. He is our rescuer. He is the Christ, the Messiah, God's anointed, the fulfillment of prophecy, and the one who is coming again. That is our King. And so we see that grace teaches us where to look. We are to look heavenward to our home. But now it also teaches us to whom we should look to. And his name is Jesus. And he is our Lord and our Savior. We move from there into verse 14. And we see now that grace teaches us who is Lord. Now Paul has just introduced us, or better yet reminded us, of Jesus, the one whom we are to look to. But now he's going to teach us more about Jesus in this particular verse. You see, Paul is about to teach us about Jesus by addressing him in the three tenses of the doctrine of salvation. Now follow along with me. When you look at verses 11 and 14, we see the past tense of the doctrine of salvation. In other words, we see that we are delivered from sin's penalty, otherwise known as justification. You look at verses 12 and verse 14, and we see the present tense of the doctrine of salvation, meaning that we are delivered from sin's power, otherwise known as sanctification. Then you look at verse 13 again, and we see the future tense of the doctrine of salvation, which is where we will be delivered from sin's presence, which is also known as glorification. Here in Paul's words to Titus, we are now seeing the perfect atoning work of Jesus Christ that is put on marvelous display for all to see. Paul goes on to teach us in verse 14 that he gave himself for us. Now in this particular phrase, Paul is referring to the substitutionary nature of Jesus Christ's death. And for the purpose, we see next that the purpose was to redeem us from all lawlessness. In other words, we are now seeing the cost of the liberating work of redemption. Now again, in looking at this particular passage, I am reminded of the words of Ellis J. Crumb when he wrote and then sang, he paid a debt he did not owe, I owed a debt I could not pay. You see, Paul here is spelling out clearly why Jesus Christ came to this place. 
He came to serve. He came to give his life as a ransom so that we may become the righteousness of God in Christ. In other words, Jesus paid for us. Jesus paid it all. We then see, according to Paul, that Jesus came to purify. You see, he came to cleanse us. You see, here's the reality of our lives as wretched sinners. Sin has made us guilty. It is sin that makes us dirty or filthy. But yet it is God's grace that is found in Christ that has now made us innocent and clean. In other words, Jesus cleanses and purifies us by his substitutionary death. Paul would then go from there and speaking to the Titus and share with us of our security and assurance. You see, we have been purchased, we have been purified in order uh, for Jesus to make us a people for his own possession. Do you realize what Paul is saying to the believers in this moment? He's saying to them, we all once belonged to sin. We all once were enslaved to Satan. Because of our sin, we all once were foreigners to the kingdom of God. But by God's Grace, we now belong to Jesus Christ. And so now that we are His, we have a holy passion. Better yet, we have a, a holy desire, as Paul would say here, to be zealous to do good works. In other words, because of God. Because of what Jesus Christ has done for us, because of his great love for us, we now have and should have a consuming desire to honor our great God and Savior. You see, our works are actually a natural response to his work. And so our daily desire, our zeal is to know him and to make him known. Thus the call to pursue godliness that we've already read about in Titus 2 verses 1 through 10. You see, grace teaches us who is Lord, and then it is grace that then empowers us to serve him as Lord. Paul then moves to verse 15, where we see that grace teaches us what it is that we should do. Now, here is the conclusion of chapter 2, which I know it seems a bit obvious to say this, but I'll say it anyway, it ultimately opens the door for chapter 3. Okay, I get that, because it's the last verse, we move on to chapter 3. So, foreshadowing to next week, if you don't know where we're going to be, now you know. But before we dive into verse, uh, verse 15, and speaking of this verse, I love what John MacArthur says. He says, of this particular verse, in Titus 2, verse 15, this is actually one of the clearest and strongest statements in Scripture about the spiritual authority of men who God calls to minister his word and shepherd his people. And so here we find ourselves as teachers and, and, and elders and deacons and people, faithful members of the church, we are called to declare these things. 
Now notice Paul begins with the fact that we are to speak and to say these words to people. And so what Paul will do next is he will follow up with three more commands. He follows up with words like exhort and rebuke and then let no one disregard. Then Paul would tell us in the midst of this that as a man of God, as people of God, we can speak with all authority because of the authority of Jesus Christ. So let's go back and break these phrases down for a moment. You see, Paul starts by saying that we are to declare these things. In other words, Paul's referring back to verses 11 through 14. In fact, he's referring back to the entire letter. So here's a good point. When you read that phrase, declare these things, if you want to know what Paul is talking about, go back to Titus 1.1 and begin reading again. Okay, this is that moment where, I don't know if you guys grew up with this like I did, but did you ever have one of those choose-your-own-adventure books? And every now and then you'd get to the point where it would say, choose this page or choose that page. And so you'd choose it, and then you'd get to the page you didn't want, which was either the conclusion of the story, or it would tell you to go back to page one and start over again. Did anybody have that, or was that my mom just playing a bad joke on me? Must have been my mother. Well, anyway, you'd, have, you'd almost have this reset button. So that's what you're looking at here from Paul. He's saying, declare all these things. Everything that I've taught you from this point, declare these things. You see, in other words, as faithful believers in Jesus Christ, we are to be teaching sound doctrine. As believers, we must know what we believe about the person and the work of Jesus Christ. We must know what we believe about the doctrine of salvation, about the doctrine of the church, and the doctrine of the future and what is to come. You see, it's not simply enough to just serve. Rather, we need to know why we serve because there will be a day where people will ask questions. And as believers in Christ, we already have the answers. It's found in the word of God. Paul will then say that we are to exhort. In other words, he is addressing our duty before God and mankind. We are to encourage one another. We are to come alongside one another in order to challenge them in the ways that we should live according to the word of God. In other words, this is that moment where believers gather with like-minded believers for one purpose, and that is to glorify God through the study of his word. You see, the reality is this. What brings us all together is not our life stage. It's not our socioeconomic status. It's not our ethnicity or our background. What ties us together is the gospel of Jesus Christ and his holy word. There should be no other qualifier. Paul goes from there and says that not only are you to declare these things and exhort, but then he says that we are to rebuke. In other words, we are to admonish others concerning the ways in which we should not go. Now pay attention here. Because you see, when Paul is speaking of exhortation, he's actually talking to the faithful. And so when he speaks of rebuke here, he's literally talking to the unfaithful, those who claim to be followers but still find themselves in sin. He's speaking to those who don't even know Jesus Christ as Lord. So here's the reality as believers in Christ, knowing that we are to declare, to exhort, and then to rebuke, we need to be willing to confront, correct, and to do so with the authority that comes from knowing God's word. 
You see, we are not, hear this, we are not to compromise the truth of God's word. We are to discern and weigh what we see and what we hear in light of God's word. That goes for our workplaces, our schools, and yes, even within our own churches. We are called to shepherd, to protect, and when necessary, to lovingly lead with a firm and steady hand. So after saying all these things to Titus, to his church, Notice where Paul closes his message. He says this, he says, let no one disregard you. Now this is important because we need to realize that as believers in Christ, speaking the truth of God will not always be popular, but it will always be necessary. Speaking the truth of Christ according to his word will require courage. It will require conviction and confidence in God's word. So as believers, we should stand humbly upon the word, refusing to be intimidated by people speaking against God and his word. We should never let, according to Paul, let anyone despise us or look down upon us because of our faith. Also, as believers, we don't look around in worry either. Rather, we look upward. We look heavenward to our home, seeking out the orders that come from our great God and our Savior. You see, we look to his will being done and not our own. You see, it is grace. Grace teaches us Who gives the orders? Grace then teaches us how we are to study. And then grace teaches us what it is that we are to do. You see, the grace of God, according to Paul in his text, this is the foundation for godly living. You see, grace is rooted in Christ's past work on the cross and the promise of his future return. Now, I love the phrase that Martin Luther lived by when he said this. He said, I live as though Christ died yesterday, rose again today, and is coming again tomorrow. This is how we, as believers in Christ, are called to live. You see, our pursuit of godliness actually rests uh, securely between the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ and his second coming. So what happens in between that time is our pursuit of godliness, and it is all resting upon the amazing grace of God. So our prayer today should be that our knowledge and our lives be lived in grace. Our prayer is that our pursuit of godliness, our living within the biblical roles, within the home, within work, and within the church, 
that they would all be an anthem of praise to our great God and our Savior, and his name is Jesus. Let's pray together. Father God, we come before you right now thanking you so much for this morning. And Lord, we thank you for the opportunity that we've had to to be in this place and to talk about you and to study your word. Father, we praise you that as we've read over the past two weeks, we have seen the call that you've placed upon each of us. You have called us all to pursue godliness. We have seen how you've called us to that pursuit through the biblical roles that you have called each one of us to. And Father, we praise you for your word today as we see and learn that the reason we pursue you is because of the grace that you have shown us. So God, we thank you that you are a gracious God, a loving God, a merciful God. You love us enough to correct us, to discipline us, and at the same time show us your mercy and favor. You paid a debt that we deserved. You paid a price that we were not owed. And so we thank you for King Jesus Thank you that he alone is the author and perfecter of our faith. Thank you for the grace that has been shown to us. And Father, we ask and pray in our actions, in our words, as we move about our day, even in the most trivial and mundane tasks. Father, may we look to you because you are our hope. May we look to you realizing that this place is not our home. We are simply sojourners passing through. But Father, more importantly than all of that, may we look to you, our Lord, our Savior, our Redeemer, our friend. May we look to you in wonder and awe of what you have done for us. May we see you in all things. May we speak of you in every opportunity that you give us. And in our lives, may you and you alone be glorified. Jesus, again, we love you, we thank you, and we praise you. And it's in your precious and holy name we pray. Amen.